invite you to turn to Revelation 21. We'll read Revelation 21 and then the first little part of Revelation 22, found in your pew Bibles on page 1007. John writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said this, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. And the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It has a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates are inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of the Israelites. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city has 12 foundations, and on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which the angel was using. The wall is built of jasper, while the city is pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with every jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelve amethyst. 
And the 12 gates are 12 pearls. Whenever you hear a joke using the pearly gates, this is where it comes from. No extra charge for that. Each of the gates is a single pearl, and the streets of the city of gold is pure gold, transparent as glass. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They need nor light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. For the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. See, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This is the word of the Lord. Early on Wednesday morning, when the results of the election were in, this is what I wrote on Facebook. Jesus is Lord. Act like it. Act like he is Lord of how you hope and pray and treat each other. Act like he is Lord of the church. Act like he is Lord of how we will love everyone who feels threatened and afraid today. Act like he is Lord of how we will love people who didn't vote the way we did. Act like he is Lord, because he is. And because Jesus lives and he is Lord, we can face tomorrow. And there were people scattered across social media who were saying, that's not very comforting for me. Saying Jesus is Lord isn't helping me right now. And I can see that for some, that response may have felt a bit dismissive of their pain. But the only way we can write that, whether on a Wednesday after an election or any other time in our life, is because of the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation, as we have seen over these past several weeks, describes the relationships between Christians an empire. And what we have seen in the last six months in the United States of America are Christians trying to align themselves with empire. Christians across the political spectrum are willing to overlook certain aspects of each of the presidential candidates 
because there were other values we wanted to promote more. Some of us convinced ourselves that if this presidential candidate got into office, our interests would be protected for another four years. And let me tell you something. In that regard, it didn't matter who won because Christians were all wrong. Our brothers and sisters who chose Secretary Clinton and did so because we thought she offered us protection from sexism or racism or crass language realized this week with alarming clarity that our empire will not protect us. Maybe we had a vision of euphoria in which racism had faded to the background, where women's reports of sexual abuse or assault would be believed where a black man could be president and then a white woman after him, and that a man who said things about Mexicans or prisoners of war or women would be soundly defeated. May I say something offensive if I haven't yet? If we thought that, I'm afraid we have confused the empire of the United States with the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God in which every tongue and tribe and nation will be welcomed. It's the kingdom of God in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Jesus Christ. That's not the United States. It's the kingdom of God. And if we put our hopes in any earthly leader, any earthly empire to lead us into the kingdom of God, then we have committed a centuries, millennia-old heresy that is warned against by the psalmist who said, hey, don't put your trust in princes. Do not rely on humans for your help. Doesn't work. For our brothers and sisters who chose Mr. Trump, we made the same error. We believed that giving him position would give us power, that he would guard our values. We believe that through him, the rights of the unborn will be protected and the deep sorrow of abortion will be crippled. We believe that having him choose the next Supreme Court justice, or maybe two, would guarantee us protection and support for generations to come. We have made a dangerous bargain. We have put our hopes for the future of the empire to do the right thing. We have put our hopes in empire to protect religious freedoms. We have put our hopes in empire to have our backs. May I say something offensive? If we have placed our hope in empire to have our backs, to protect us as Christians, to value the things that we value and love the things that Jesus loved, we have confused the empire of the United States with the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God in which Jesus says, let the children come to me. It's the kingdom of God in which the last will be first and the first will be last. It's the kingdom of God in which justice and peace embrace. It's not the United States. So if, when we stood in our polling place on Tuesday and we colored in the little circle, or we pulled a lever, or we punched a hole in a card, if we did so in the deep hope that this person, this one, if elected, would guarantee us a better future as Christians, we committed idolatry. 
when we look to anyone other than Jesus Christ to guarantee us a better future, we have committed idolatry. And this doesn't only happen in politics. For some of us, we think, oh, if I only met the person, if I only met the one, if I only had that happen, if I only could get married someday, then I'm sure all of my sorrows would be ended and the bluebird of happiness will come along and life will be forever sweet and good if only I can just find this person. If you have placed your hopes in that, you have committed idolatry. Or if you think that your good grades will guarantee your future success and financial security, and that is why you walk around this place sleep-deprived and anxious and crabby, because you think your grades matter above all, you have committed idolatry. And as we have seen, the book of Revelation is all about revealing our idols. Revelation is all about the dangers of the earthly empire and the temptation to follow it, to worship it, to place your trust in it. Don't you think that the Christians who first read the book of Revelation had deep political divisions? That there were some who thought, you know, we can get along with local authorities. Surely we can. Maybe we could just bribe the police to keep walking when we're together on Sunday mornings. You know, I think the next emperor will truly have our backs. You know, I think throwing the occasional dead chicken on the altar of Zeus may be politically expedient. Ever since Jesus rose from the dead, Christians have had deep political problems. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he overturned every earthly power that has ever existed and will ever exist. When Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered the beast of Rome, yes, and the beast of Israel, and the beast of South Korea, and the beast of the United States of America. Every earthly empire who has ever said, we've got it together, we are full of righteousness and grace and truth, come along, join us was overthrown in the resurrection. Every earthly leader who has said, come, follow me, and I will protect your interests. I will have your back. Every earthly leader has said, yes, we can make this country great again because we are stronger together. Overthrown in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Overthrown in the resurrection Jesus Christ. That's why saying Jesus is Lord is the most politically offensive thing we could ever do. Because saying Jesus is Lord means no one else is. Saying Jesus is Lord means you are saying that your first priority, your first loyalty, your first commitment is not to a person or a party or even to yourself but to Jesus Christ. Empires will be overthrown. Emperors and presidents and prime ministers and kings and queens and tribal leaders and student body presidents 
will all be overthrown. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. This vision we read about in Revelation 21, this is the most literal part of Revelation in a way because this will actually happen. This is going to happen. The home of God will be with his people. God will dwell with us. And did you see what his first act is? He will wipe away every tear from your eye. God's first act is not to make everybody dow, bow down and worship. His first act is not to host a victory parade. His very first act will be to look you in the eye. And when he looks you in the eye, he will see every pain, every hurt that has accumulated in you through the course of your lifetime. The time someone called you a racist for how you voted. The time someone told you to go back to where you came from. The time someone told you that your story of sexual abuse or assault didn't matter. The time someone called you a coward. God will look you in the eye and see your pain. The pain that no empire can ever fix. God will look you in the eye and see your pain and in one strong and beautiful move, he will both validate your pain and heal it as he wipes away your tears. That's how our God dwells with his people. That's how he is in the midst of us in this new heaven and new earth. If someone were to ask you what salvation is, you might say something like, well, salvation means I get to go to heaven when I die. Yeah, almost. As we learned last week, when people die in the Lord, they reign with Christ in heaven temporarily. They reign with Christ in heaven until Christ's return. Because salvation, my friends, is not us going up to heaven. Salvation is God coming down to earth. Let me say that again. Salvation is not us going on up to heaven. Harps, clouds, angels, sprout. No. Salvation is God coming down to earth. God comes down to earth and he radically redeems it. You may have heard that phrase, everything happens for a reason. I find that phrase spectacularly unhelpful. If someone says to you, everything happens for a reason, when something deeply painful has happened to you, you have every reason to punch them in the face. <laughs> because what they are saying to you is, yeah, your pain really doesn't matter in particular ways. And they also have handed you, congratulations, an existential crisis. 
Because then it's like, well, everything happens for a reason. I got to find out the reason. What was the reason? What was the reason? I don't know the reason. Do you know the reason? Help me with the reason. Help me figure out the reason. And if you're a believer, it's like, God, what was the reason? I don't get this. Why did you let this happen? You're supposed to be in charge of everything. This happened. I don't know the reason. Tell me the reason. Something much more helpful and theologically accurate is this. Everything will be redeemed. Everything will be redeemed. You see, what God did in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this great upsetting of the order, this great overturn, when death turned into life, when disorder was turned into order, when chaos was turned into beauty, that is a glimpse of what will happen when Jesus comes again. All the deep hurts that we have suffered, all the things that we have accumulated, all the wounds of this world will be transformed into ways we cannot even begin to imagine. The new heavens and the new earth will be free of sin and full of life. And that's why we've got these two weird parts in Revelation 21. You may have heard Revelation 21 read at a funeral. They don't read verse 8. Yeah. The cowardly, the faceless, the polluters, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all there. The lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is, you don't hear that at funerals. People usually stop with, and they will be my children, period. That's because that's an image of the things that won't be in the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 27 sums it up by saying, you know, everything unclean just won't be there. You see, God's redemption of the world, his redemption of the earth means everything unclean gets taken out. Like the most potent bleach, God erases all the stains of evil from his world. And he removes all those who have made the stains. So not just racism, but unrepentant racists. Not just sexism, but unrepentant sexists. Not just atheism, but unrepentant atheists will be removed. And now I'm guessing you may have some objections. You may read over this list and think, really? Cowards? Really? People who have sex with people they're not married to? Really? All liars? Really? And we think of how many times we've fit into that list, and we think of all the people we know and love who still fit into that list. And now we like to think that God cannot be serious. But he is. Throughout this book, we have heard creatures and angels say in the presence of God, holy, holy, holy. If you were here in chapel on Friday, we sang it over and over and over again. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. 
It's the holiness of God that cannot abide sin. God is offended by sin. The reign of God and the presence of sin do not go together. So when God comes to dwell on earth, sin has to be removed. Now for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, for those of us who have said, I am sorry, I repent of my sin, and I believe that Jesus is the Son of God sent to redeem the world, For those of us who believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, we're forgiven. God has forgiven our sins. But as we have seen in Revelation again and again and again, there are people who don't repent, even when God gives them every chance. And so they will be removed. And the challenge for us right now, today, is that we've got friends on that list. We've got family members on that list. So this idea of the new heavens and the new earth, while amazing, also leaves us with a lump in our throats. What do we do about that? Well, the vision of Revelation 21 suggests that what we do about that is the same thing we do in response to an election, any election. It's the same thing we do in response to homelessness. It's the same thing we do in response to abortion. It's the same thing we do in response to poverty. We work for the kingdom of God. And now I know some of you are like, oh, really, kingdom of God, really? That's not very exciting. We kind of expected you to say that. That's kind of the churchy answer. But let me tell you something. If salvation doesn't mean we go flying off to heaven forever and ever, but it means that God comes down to earth, that means that everything we do now that is God-honoring and life-giving and promotes the name of Jesus Christ, every good thing we do now continues into the new heaven and the new earth. Everything. Tom Wright is a theologian. We've been using his Revelation commentary. He's coming in January, by the way. I know, total woo. All the uh, theology fangirls and boys are like, yes. He wrote this amazing book called Surprised by Hope. And he talks about heaven and salvation and new heavens and the new earth. And he puts it like this. A proper grasp of the future hope held out to us in Jesus Christ leads directly to a vision for the present hope that is the basis of all Christian mission. To hope for a better future in this world for the poor, the sick, the lonely and depressed, for the slaves, the refugees, the hungry and the homeless, the abused, the paranoid, the downtrodden and despairing. And in fact, for the whole wide, wonderful, and wounded world is not something else. It's not something extra, something tacked on to the gospel as an afterthought. It is a central, essential, vital, and life-giving part of it. 
what you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself. What you do in the present will carry on into God's future. These activities are not just ways of making life a little less beastly in the present, a little more bearable until the day we leave it all behind. They are part of what we call building for God's kingdom. God alone will make the new heavens and the new earth. It's the height of folly to think that we could assist in that work. But somehow, he says, what we can and must do in the present, if we are obedient to the gospel and empowered by the Holy Spirit, is to build the kingdom. The root of this, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll off a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown into the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself. You're accomplishing something that will become, in due course, part of God's new world. Every act of love and gratitude, every act, every minute spent teaching a child to read or walk, every care, act of care or nurture, every prayer, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds the church, makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all will find its way into the new creation God will one day make. This means that what we do in Christ and by the power of the Spirit in the present is not Wasted. What you do tonight when you walk back with your friends and you treat them with kindness and civility and compassion, you're building the kingdom. When you in class tomorrow listen to a professor with attentiveness, even though he or she may be saying something with which you do not agree, and you love them, you are building the kingdom. When you give your dollar every week to the community care fund, you're building the kingdom because those acts of generosity build other acts of generosity and all of that somehow will be worked into the new heaven and the new earth. And when the followers of Jesus act like the followers of Jesus, we will draw our friends and our family into the kingdom. We will draw our friends and our family to this table. Christians got a bad rap in this election. And it's going to be hard for some people to understand what we believe and what we're all about. So we need to show them in how we live and how we live out kingdom values today, which means 
standing up for the oppressed, which means fighting for the poor, which means living well for refugees and for immigrants and for widows and orphans and single parents and the elderly and every gay teen who is scared of the future. We stand up. We live into the kingdom because we believe with all our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. We believe with all our hearts that the things we do in this world right now are not wasted. We believe that we can change the world one kind act at a time, one Jesus testimony at a time, because when we are doing these things, we are telling the old, old story. We are telling the old, old story of a God who created the world good, about a world that fell into sin, the type of sin that produces the ugliness of poverty and violence and racism and sexism. But how God loved that broken world and sent his son Jesus to redeem it. And Jesus lived and taught and loved and died and rose again. And in his resurrection, he upset every earthly power. And as his followers, we keep doing what he did. We keep disrupting every earthly power that says it is Lord. We keep disrupting every earthy person who says he or she is Lord. We act like Jesus. We live like Jesus. We love like Jesus. And that's how the people we know and love will get to this table. Tonight, we're going to invite you, after I pray, we're going to pass out baskets. And they're going to have these little name cards, the kind you'd get at a meal. Maybe you'll have them on Thanksgiving Day. And we invite you to write on here the name of a person, someone that you know and love who's far from the kingdom someone you know and love whom you want to have at the table. And then when we come forward for the sacrament, we're going to have you take the sacrament and take this up, take your pen, you're going to drop the pen in the basket, and you're going to put the name on the table. And when you put that name on the table, listen to me, don't do this lightly. When you put that name on the table, you are committing yourself to live a kingdom life so that that person has no excuse, so that that person knows what it's like to love the Lord, so that that person knows what it's like to have somebody who's willing to lay down her life for her friends. We are committing to kingdom living so that everyone who looks at us will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we are coming today and we are participating in the feast, no matter what country we are from, no matter what race we are, no matter what political party we affiliate with or don't affiliate with. We are coming to this feast because Jesus Christ is Lord. We are coming to this feast because when we eat the bread and drink the cup, the Holy Spirit the power of Jesus nurtures us 
for the hard and important work of building the kingdom. What you do in this present is not wasted. So do justice. Love kindness. And walk humbly with your God step by step into the new heavens and the new earth where Jesus Christ is Lord of all.